Well, if you're uh, visiting this morning, welcome. I'm Chuck. I'm uh, one of the pastors, and to our online community, we want to say good morning to you. We're going to look at John chapter 9 this morning. Uh, Last week, uh, Jesus encounters some people who begin to believe in him, and then he offers the invitation to forsake all and to follow him. He says, if you continue in my word, you're my disciples indeed, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And if you were here last week, you saw that these individuals really, when push came to shove, were more um, convicted or, or they had more of a concern to define themselves in their own terms rather than how God saw them, and then to define God in their own terms rather than how Jesus was communicating himself as God to them. And this, uh, this demand to be in control uh, really exacerbates itself to the point where they get antagonistic, and we ended the chapter with them picking up stones, literally, and they are prepared to stone Jesus to death. That's how forcefully and how dogmatically they're hanging on to their own understanding. So what Jesus will do this week is he's going to heal a blind person who was born blind from birth, and he's using this, in a sense, not only to bless this man and bless the community, but also to show that we need to see him with spiritual eyes. If we think we know we're in control, if we think we know what God wants, if we think that our definition of what godliness is, uh, is, is one that we will stand on no matter what, he is saying, then you don't really see me. We, you have to forsake all and follow me. If anyone choose to be my disciple, let him deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. The conditions of discipleship. And so what he's gonna do today is he's gonna heal this blind person as a way to show the individuals that are listening to him that you need to see with spiritual eyes. So let's start. Let's start in John chapter 9, and we'll look at verses 1 through 7, and I'll cut this in bite-sized pieces for us. But verses 1 through 7, beginning here, you're going to see the the disciples just don't quite see what Jesus is up to. Their, Their eyes are on something else. It's almost like they're in theology class instead of seeing a need of a person who was, who was sight impaired right before him. So let's pick up in John chapter 9, verse 1. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, how can we help this individual? No, they go straight to their own agenda, and they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Perhaps a legitimate theological question uh, in the time, but not the right place to ask it. Because when you think about it, my guess is they are within earshot of this this blind individual. And how would you feel if you're looking for help and someone starts talking about theology and then talking directly about your sin or your parents' sin? That kind of lacks a little bit of compassion, doesn't it? Um, I know one thing in terms of uh, the time spent that uh, my mother-in-law lived with us for a couple of years, two and a a half years, and uh, Greta and I... Uh, took care of her while she was in her declining health, and eventually she went to be with the Lord last July. But I remember, um, and having been in enough hospital rooms in the past, there was one thing I wanted to stay away from, and that is talking about her, talking about her affairs, talking about her health, talking about her home with her in the room as if she didn't exist. Um, If you are around elderly people who are toward the end of their life, many times we fall into that trap where we start talking about them as if they didn't exist and they're not in the room. And I always felt that was kind of insulting, and I wanted to make sure that I honored her, in, in, uh, especially in her final days. So we tried to be very aware of that, that you just don't want to talk about someone uh, when they're there as if they don't exist. And I kind of feel like that's what's happening here. It's just human nature. And so they asked the question, 
But Jesus has got his sights on bigger things. Let's see how Jesus answers. He says, neither this man nor his parents sin, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. One takeaway from this is the fact that God often uses our hurt, heartache, and pain in order to reveal to us his glory. Uh, the beautiful message of Romans 8.28, now we know that all things work for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. All things aren't necessarily good, but God will work all things for his glory. And this is one of these examples. He's going to do something unbelievably miraculous. And unfortunately, at this point in time, the disciples are more concerned about, about splitting hairs over theology rather than just following the master. He continues in verse four and says, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, the night is coming when no one can work. I think two things he's referring to or alluding to here. Firstly, the idea that he knows it's the Sabbath and we're gonna unpack this as we move along in the chapter. He knows this, this, this is the Sabbath. He's gonna heal on the Sabbath. He knows he's already encountered some really vicious uh, antagonism against healing on the Sabbath in John chapter five, when if you remember, he healed the man that had been at the pool in Bethesda for 38 years. He'd been a paralytic and God healed him. And the religious leaders were more concerned about the fact that he healed on the Sabbath as opposed to the fact that this man had experienced a wonderful, wonderful miracle. And so firstly, he knows that this is gonna get ugly. And then secondly, I think what's happening here is Jesus is now turning his eyes towards the cross. Because next week, we'll see the story about the good shepherd. The week after that, we're gonna see the story about Lazarus being raised from the dead. The week after that, in John chapter 12, he moves from Bethany to Jerusalem, and we begin the triumphal entry, and now he has got his eyes fixed on the cross. And so I think here, he's beginning to telegraph this truth to his followers. And then he says in verse five, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So once again, we get a deity statement here. Like he said last week, before Abraham was, I am. Here he offers again to his listeners a, a deity statement. Jesus Christ is God. I am. I am the light of the world. So when he had said these things, he spat on the ground. My, my GP does this all the time, by the way. I, I'm, tired of all, I'm tired of getting clay in my eyes. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind men with the clay, and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sin. And look at this guy. He just did what he was told. He went and washed, and he came back seeing. Simple faith. And we'll see that simple faith theme recycle itself all the way through this chapter. So what's happening here? Spittle, clay, saliva. Um, I guess you could say one. Some commentators say that Jesus was alluding to the fact that if you go back to Genesis 2-7, that God formed Adam out of the dust, and so maybe there's an allusion to this. Now, interestingly, there's two other occasions in the Gospels where, where Jesus uses this method of healing, clay and, and spittle. And that's in Mark chapter 7, where he healed an individual who was deaf and mute. And then he healed a, a different individual in Mark chapter 8 who was sight impaired or blind. And so there's something going on here in terms of this method. I, I think one thing that we have to remember that it's not about the method, it's about the master because Jesus will use all kinds of different ways to get his point across so that we don't follow a formula. And you'll see that indefinitely underlined in the book of Acts. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, the one thing that you can count on, the one thing conventional about the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts is that he's unconventional. Because I think one of the things is we wanna to continue to keep our eyes fixed on the master and not necessarily the method. 
And so the individual is healed. He never even really sees Jesus technically. Uh, he's given his sight and he'll have an encounter with Jesus at the end of the chapter. But as we move in now, let's see what happens to the next group. The next group is going to be verses eight through 12. And we're gonna see the neighbors. The neighbors are gonna get their first look at him. And unfortunately, their vision is clouded by confusion. Let's take a look. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen he was blind said, is this not he who sat and begged? In a way, they're, it sounds like they're incredulous. They can't believe it's, this is going on. Some said, this is he. Others said, he is like him. And finally, he steps up and says, yo, I am he. Therefore, they said to him, how were your eyes opened? They answered and said, a man, he answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said unto me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed and received sight, simple faith. So they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. And there's all kinds of uh, just confusion here. And I don't mean that as a negative. I, I, I think about, um, I remember, you know, gosh, tomorrow, 22 year anniversary for lack of a better term or, or memorial, I think is a better phrase, 22nd uh, memorial for 9-11. I, I can't believe that 22 years have passed. That's such a long time when you think about it. But for many of us, it was yesterday. Uh, I'll never forget where I was. And uh, I wasn't a TV watcher at that time in the morning, but I remember somebody from the church called me at, I don't know what it was, 8, 7.30 in the morning and said, Chuck, you're not gonna believe what's going on. And I flipped the television on and I could not believe what my eyes were, were seeing. And I know for myself personally, my dad worked in the North Tower. And as a kid, I watched those buildings go up, driving up North Jersey on the turnpike and, and just watching them going up in lower Manhattan. I even remember when Philippe Petit crossed over with the guy wire and did his, his high wire act at, at that time. So I think like all of us, when circumstances like this defy our natural senses, there's just an element of confusion because it just doesn't seem like they're really uh, focusing on, on the, the fact that a miracle has taken place. You know, they're not grabbing him by the shoulders and say, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. I have watched you all these years not be able to see, and now you're looking right at me. They're, they're not really engaged in that, and I can't fault them for it because it's just incredulous to see what happens. And so firstly, you can see the vision is clouded a little bit by confusion. As we move to the next group, now the Pharisees come on the scene. Bum, 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 bum. So the Pharisees are brought in between verses 13 and 18. This will be the first of two times we encounter them. In verse 13, they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. And now uh, it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And the Pharisees also asked him again, how? So here, they're not rejoicing in the miracle in a sense. They're, they're more being the investigative reporter. They're eyewitness news. And they, they more have an agenda to find out what's going on here rather than what's happened. The Pharisees also asked him again how he would, had received his sight. And he said to them, well, here, the simple faith. He put clay in my eyes and I washed and, and I see. So therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. Now, I've been waiting all week to tell you this. All week. They are split over spit. <laughs> I told you it would be funny. You didn't laugh. <laughs> My wife rolled her eyes at me. I think that's hilarious. <laughs> all right. <laughs> 
In verse 17, they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him who opened your eyes? Once again, it's, it's more an accusing investigation rather than, holy cow, let's, let's uh, break out the fatted calf, you can see. This is unbelievable. Uh-uh, no, it's more, they are defining themselves by their own understanding and they're defining God by their own understanding. While Jesus is doing all these miracles, they choose not to, not to accept the fact that God is standing right in front of them. They can't see him. So they said to the blind man, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? And the blind man said, well, he's a prophet. He's somebody different from us. But look at this in verse 18. The Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight. How, how, I don't understand how you can put that together. How can you not recognize that this guy, and you remember, you know, this is not a real transitory community. These people lived with, with, uh, amongst families for generations. They, the odds are they never travel more than a mile of, uh, in their lifetime. And so they know who this guy is, and yet they're so blind and so determined to follow their own understanding and have things their own way in their life and have God kind of dance according to their tune that they're just completely refusing what's in, right in front of them. Ugh. If you continue in my word, you're my disciples indeed, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. My word, my nature, my character is right in front of you. If you will just trust me and follow me, forsake all and follow me, I will lead you to paths of righteousness. I will lead you to freedom. But it's just not good enough for these individuals. They are so set in their ways, and they're so set in their arrogant interpretation of who they think God is, they will deny of truth that's standing them right in the face. And they're denying two truths that are standing them in the, in the face. One is an individual who once was blind who now can see. And secondly, you're, you're, they're denying the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And they're standing on something like the man-made rules of the Sabbath in order to push that to the side. They can't see. They can't see. Their vision is clouded by arrogance. And we'll see, it's, they're going to double down in another couple of, of verses. So here, it's just so unfortunate that here a miracle that should be celebrated and rejoiced in is just denied. It, it just really kind of, it just, it, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And so in verse 19, they asked him saying, is this your, oh, I'm sorry, now that we move to the parents, they, if I go back to verse 18, um, that he had been blind and received his sight until they called his parents of him who had received his sight. And now we're going to get a testimony from his parents between verses 19 and verses 23. And here you're going to see the parents' vision is clouded by fear. They're more afraid of what the Pharisees can do to them than what has happened to a man, their own son, who has been given his eyesight back. There's no reference from the parents' lips here that their son has been really been given a supernatural miracle. It's more, I'm afraid of the Pharisees because they're going to kick me out of church. So let's take a look. In verse 19, they asked him saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he then now see? And, you know, kind of tongue in cheek, but when I got in trouble in school, probably when, like when you got in trouble in school, what did the principal say or the teacher say to you? I'm going to call your parents. Yeah, it almost sounds like this here. I know it's probably different culturally, but I couldn't help but just think that, okay, so you don't believe him. So now you're going to call his parents and find out. Okay. So in verse 20, his parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. And then they just kind of basically 
deny. They, they kick the can down the road and they say, he's of age, ask him, he'll, he'll speak for himself. And so instead of this idea of a supernatural miracle and standing up saying, I don't know how it happened, I don't know who did it, but holy cow, I can't believe it. My son can see. We are just rejoicing and I am so enveloped with that fact, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. No fear of man, nothing else matters. I'm rejoicing in the glory of God. They're not doing that. Their vision is clouded by fear. Even though they can see a miracle and right in front of their eyes, they're more consumed with fear. They're more consumed with their own understanding than they are with God's miraculous ability to heal their own son. So his parents, and here we can see the reason in verse 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. But the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. And therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Man, there's a lot of clouded vision in these verses, aren't there? The parents just, they can see, but they, they can't see. They're not willing to admit it. And then the Pharisees come back for a second dose. In verses uh, 24 through 34, they again called the man who was blind and said to him, give God the glory. Now, when you look at this in the original language, give God the glory means we know that you're wrong. We know that you're a liar. We know that you're seeing things. Confess. Confess that what you have done or what you have said or this, this uh caper that you're up to, let's just, let's just get to the, to the end of it here and just tell us what really happened. So here they're just, they're, for, they're investigative reporters again. They're saying, confess. And then look at the words here. We know. We know that the earth is flat. We know that cigarettes are not bad for your health. We know that the Padres, because they beat the Dodgers last year in the playoffs, are going to win the World Series this year. <laughs> I couldn't resist that one. We know, man, anytime, beware that, that you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. But they're so arrogant. Their vision is completely clouded by their own pride and their own arrogance. And so let's see what happens. He says, we know that this man is a sinner. They're saying that Jesus is a sinner. He answered and said, well, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. Well, one thing I know, so here's a nice contrast. They know he's a sinner, and the, and the man who has had his sight rest restored says, I know that I was blind, and now I see. Then they said to him again, well, what did he do to you? So they're pressing in. How did he open your eyes? So finally, they're admitting that he actually was uh, the beneficiary of a miracle. In 27, he answered them, and he says, I told you already, and you didn't listen. There's a Yiddish word here for what I feel like this guy is uh, conveying to them right now. It's called chutzpah, because this man has no education. He was blind just, what, minutes ago. Uh, no opportunity to really get to know God that deeply. And yet here he is saying, you guys, you religious leaders, well, you, you're not even listening to me. And so he pipes up and he starts getting a little... Um, a little energized in regard to his, his responses to them, so unlike his parents. So he says, you didn't listen. I've, I've been telling you this, told, told the neighbors. Uh, I told my parents. I, I told you a first time. I, now a second time you're asking me the same questions. You're not listening. So he says, why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? <laughs> Chutzpah. <laughs> then they reviled him and said, well, you're his disciple, but we're Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we know you know where he's from. Well, there's an obvious answer to that conundrum, isn't there? 
ask Jesus where he's from. I'm sure he would have told them. The man answered and said to them, well, why, this is a marvelous thing. Finally, somebody pipes up and says what has happened is a marvelous thing. We get to the, the, the root issue here of this healing is that a wonderful miracle has taken place. Let's celebrate in it and let's take joy in it and give God the glory. So finally, he talks about the elephant in the room. Why, this is a marvelous thing that you don't know where he's from, that, that you don't know where he's from, yet he's opened my eyes. And now he continues, it's almost like he, he starts to give a Bible study to the Pharisees. So go for it, buddy. You know, it's kind of like giving him an eye exam here. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. So simple. Since the world began, it's been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. Okay, you can't dispute that. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So they answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins and you're teaching us and they cast him out. And so they're, they're more concerned about his, his theology. I'm, so, I'm sure their pride is being ruffled here. They're more concerned about what's happening to them and how their pride's being ruffled as opposed to the fact that they're standing in front of someone who is a living, walking, breathing miracle. And so you can see here that their vision is completely crowded by pride. They think they can see, they know that they can see but they don't see anything. And then finally, Jesus shows up and the, the man who is healed and his healer show up and they, they cross paths. And it's wonderful here because Jesus goes and finds him. In verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, do you believe in the son of God? And I think it's interesting here that Jesus doesn't say, do you believe in the fact that I healed you? He says, do you believe in the son of God? And so the emphasis all the way through the Gospels is believe in the Son of God. The Jews asked him in John chapter 6, what does it mean to do the work or the will of God? And Jesus said to do the work or the will of God is to believe on the one whom he has sent. And so the healings are great. The things that God does in our lives is, is great. But at the, at the end of it, our salvation rests alone in our faith and our profession of faith that Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was buried on the third day, he rose again from the dead. That's where we get true spiritual vision. Well, let's see how this individual uh, reacted to that. And so Jesus uh, finds him and says, do you believe in the son of God? He answered and said, well, who is he, Lord, that I may believe him? Now remember, he didn't, he didn't see Jesus when the healing took place. He went and washed and came back. So he's never seen Jesus before. And so Jesus says to him in verse 37, you have both seen him and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Does it get any simpler than that? This man was in such a state of need. God met his need, and his response was to worship him in spirit and truth. And so not only is he given his sight physically earlier in the chapter, but now he is given his sight spiritually. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, and now I see. Mm. So Jesus said in verse 39, here's, here's one of the applications. For judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Well, what's he saying here? Well, he's saying here that if you think you know what God wants, and you think you know that your way is, is better than the way of Jesus, then you're blind. You really can't see the truth, even though it's staring you in the face. 
but those of us who recognize that we're paupers, that we're blind, that, that, that we, we need help, that we're lost without him, those are the ones when God starts to communicate to us and woo us with his cords of loving kindness, we respond to him. You know, Amazing Grace was written in the mid-1700s by a guy by the name of John Newton. And John Newton, this thing just didn't pop out of his, his pen. Uh, it came through a bunch of really uh, difficult hardships in his life where he was so prideful and so arrogant and could not see the grace of God that eventually he was harpooned once trying to be rescued from a ship uh, and found himself at the bottom of a, of a slave ship, basically uh, cast as, as he, was, he was turned into a slave in the galley because of his behavior towards the crew. And it was at that point in the bottom of that slave ship where he recognized that even though he had been such a renegade and such a rebel and he was so blind spiritually, that God's amazing grace came to him. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. John Newton got it. He recognized that he was a spiritual pauper. I once was blind, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And here you can see this is really what Jesus is after here, is that if you think you know, you don't know. And if you, if you uh, recognize that you are without sight and you need a savior, then that's when the promises of Jesus are just yay and amen, the alpha and the omega. And so the story ends here. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, are we blind also? And Jesus just speaks the truth and says, says to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. Or in other words, if you were a pauper and were willing to worship me like this, this formerly blind person was, then you'd have, no, you'd have no sin. You'd be able to see. But now you say, we see, we know, therefore your sin remains. And sadly, as we move forward, as I mentioned, John chapter 10 is the good shepherd. John chapter 11 is Lazarus being raised from the dead. We get to John chapter 12, Jesus moves from Bethany through the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And then he sets up shop in Jerusalem for the final days. And if you turn to John 12, 37 through 41, you can see he's going to bring this up again, this idea of seeing yet not seeing. John chapter 12, verse 37. Although he had done so many signs before them, they didn't believe in him. And we just live that in John chapter 8 and John chapter 9. But it was foretold because you can see that the Old Testament lines up with what's taking place here. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord Lord been revealed. Therefore, they couldn't believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, and now I see. And so for all those of us in here this morning that recognize that we're spiritual paupers and are continuing to feed at the, the banquet table of Jesus, to, to take our, 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 his yoke upon us, to forsake all and follow him, to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and follow him, to consider others more important than ourselves, to make sure that Jesus is front and center in our life. No other allegiances, no competing allegiances, but Jesus is front and center. We realize that Without him, I'm not going to make it. And I'm so grateful that he has found me and, and cured my spiritual blindness. Keep, to those of you who are like that, I'd say keep going. But if you're here this morning on the odd chance that you don't have a relationship with Jesus, 
if your ways of doing things are more important or you have a stronger conviction in your idea of who you are and what's right or your idea of, of who God is and what's right, if, you stand, if you're standing outside of a, a personal relationship with Jesus, you're spiritually blind. I, I, I don't know what else to tell you. That's what the scriptures say. But the beauty is there is a wonderful antidote to that. And that is the fact that Christ died for our sins. Why will, while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. He paid the price we should have. He paid the price we could not have. He took our sins upon himself on the cross. It was judged and rendered inoperative. He, he, he died. He was buried. On the third day, he rose again from the dead to now give to us his forgiveness, his righteousness, his spiritual sight. And that's the beauty of the simple faith of this blind man is that you can see all the way through the chapter. You know what? He told me to do this. I did this. I, I could see. And now not only do I follow him, but now I completely, I worship him. It's just so simple. I think the hardest thing is getting past our, our want of sin, our fear uh, of uh, thinking that God is going to turn us into robots, uh, our, our unwillingness to bring sin out into the light. Uh, all of these things Jesus died for. And so if you're here this morning and you're outside of that relationship, what a wonderful opportunity and invitation for you to come unto Jesus. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that you give uh, blind people, spiritually blind people, the opportunity to see the marvelous light. Thank you that you translate us into the kingdom of the son of your love. Thank you that for what you've done for us, we are now able to, to see. We're able to have a relationship with our creator and we are able to have a relationship with our redeemer. And thank you, Lord, that though I, re I remember that day when I realized that I was a sinner and I realized that I, I was so far from your grace and from your standards that I bowed my knee to you. I didn't know entirely what I was doing, but I recognize that, that you were the answer. And I thank you for that, Lord. For those of us who have done that, we thank you. And if there's any of us this morning that have yet to do that, if we're struggling or fighting or dictating terms, um, please, Lord, relax their grip. Let them know how much you love them and how willing you are to forgive them and welcome them into the family. And thank you that the root is not through great works. The root is through simply recognizing that we're sinners. And if we believe in our heart that that uh, Jesus Christ is Lord and confess, well, believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess with our lips that Jesus Christ is Lord, we're saved. Much like the, the blind man just simply worshiped. It's so easy, Lord, and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.